When I was a kid, some Sunday mornings it was difficult to get out of church from the comfort of my own bed. My mum and dad would be enthusiastic about going, but I would be a bit less so and be having a bit of a conversation from my cozy bed while they were going, come on, we're going to church, you need to get out. And every excuse under the sun would come out, do you know, kind of just like this morning when I was getting up, um, every excuse would come out about reasons why I couldn't go and, do you know, I'm tired and I've got this to do, I'm not feeling too well. Um, I, I don't know about you, was that your experience this morning with kids or even with bigger kids? I don't know how that went down. Um, and whatever your enthusiasm levels are about being here this morning, I'm glad you're here. Um, but when I had those conversations with my mom and dad those Sunday mornings, most of my life, in fact, up until I was 16, um, from I was a, a, a kid as far back as I can remember, going to the services every week, um, usually the conversation would end with, but mom, why do we have to go to church? And then it was the, the answer that every child dreads to hear, because I say so. And that was the end of the conversation, and that was kind of how it went. So you got taken to church that morning, um, you went along, no matter if you felt like it or not, you were, you were at church. And I suppose in some ways, I want to say, first of all, parents, keep doing that for your kids on a Sunday morning. Don't be letting your toddler talk you in to not letting them go to church. Because sometimes... No matter how we feel when we're coming to church and how energetic we are and enthusiastic we are, the reality is when we get here, we are meeting with God. We are hearing his truth and we're being transformed by him. Now, that's a good enough reason to make an effort to be in church whenever the, the body of Christ gather. And that's not a plug for attendance. That's a plug for spiritual growth and life transformation. So no matter where that is or what that looks like, continue to do that because you'll see the fruit of it come to, come to be in the days that are ahead. But I remember those days. And this morning, I want to talk about church. I want to talk about what, who it is and what is it doing and why are we here, who we are, and what is our purpose in being here. Now, I heard Sandy saying amen, and I forgot it was Sandy's birthday this week. Pastor Sandy, happy birthday to you. Just remembered, he said that he's 21 plus fat, so you can work that out for yourselves. Um, Sandy's great. Um, Sandy's been such a blessing to this church over the years and continues to be so. So who are we and what are we doing here? Um, the church globally gets a lot of bad press. You might see it from time to time on Facebook, the arguments that's, that, that start and the debates back and forward and back and forward. I've got involved in some of them myself over the years because I hate arguments and I just I couldn't help myself. Um, or I love arguments, I can't help myself. So I get involved in those from time to time. But what you'll often find is the church are painted in a very negative light. The whole history of the negative acts of the church globally are put out for all to see. And on one hand, and what's forgotten about on the other hand is all the good things that the church have given to the world. Like healthcare and education and fighting against oppression around the world. Biggest charities of humanitarian aid around the world were started, the majority of were started by Christians. So sometimes we forget about that. In this world that we live, when the church are getting a bad press, oh, religion and church, it's all a load of nonsense. Don't you forget that as part of the church, we have been part of some of the most positive things in the whole history of humanity. So don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But the church gets a bad press. But some of us have had our best moments in church gatherings, and sadly, some of us have had the worst experience in church gatherings. Some of us have had the worst experiences of our lives 
in church gatherings. And that's the sad reality. But when all of that is said and done, the church remains a vital part of God's plan for the world. It's the only, one of the only things that Jesus is still actively involved in building here on earth. And it's the one thing that the enemy cannot stop. That's what the church is. The church is a powerful thing. So we better understand what it is and who it is. Now, firstly, let me say this at the outset, because this will be a gathering where there'll be Christians and non-Christians and people who attend the church all their lives. To be a part of the church, the church of Jesus Christ, you need to accept by faith the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You need to repent of your sin and say, Jesus, I am sorry of what I have done to offend a holy God. And by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you become a part of the church. And you might say, Bill, that's uh, I don't need to hear that. You do need to hear that. Because in evangelical Northern Ireland, there are people sitting in churches all over this country who believe themselves to be a part of the church because they filled the membership form in or because their family was a part of that church for years before. But really, when Jesus returns and they stand before him, a membership form is not going to cut it. The fact that you had a bit of water put on your head when you were a baby is not going to cut it. The only thing that makes you a member of this church of Jesus Christ is faith in Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross. That's so important. I remember Keith Green used to say, and, and even church goers as well, because lots of people go to church even though they don't have a personal relationship with God. And it's great that you're in church, but don't forget, you're not in the church until you put your faith in Jesus. Keith Green used to say, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. But lots of people consider themselves to be a part of the church because they attend church, but that is not the case. If you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus that we celebrated this morning, then you're a part of this church of Jesus Christ. And this may come as a bit of a surprise to you, but the buildings and the mortar and the bricks are not the church. This sanctuary here is not the church. My office is not the church. The great cathedrals of the world are not the church. The gathered and scattered people of God in the world are the church. That's what Jesus is building. That's what he is interested in building. He is not interested in ornate buildings. He's not interested in how nice your seats are. We have lovely seats here, don't we? Not interested in that. We are interested in it because we like a bit of padding, and we won't want to sit here in hard seats. That's our thing. But Jesus is not interested in that. He's interested in the building of you as an individual, growing up into all maturity in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the church is, the gathered and scattered people of God in the world, meeting in secret. Some of them even today meeting in toilets because they can't meet publicly, speaking in sign language to one another because they're afraid of the authorities. Some of the churches today are in chipping containers, roasting in the midday sun, and freezing in the middle of the night. So that is the church that Jesus is interested in. And that's really important that we get that because a lot of us fight more for the bricks and mortar than we do for the actual honor of God's name. We're more concerned about where the piano is and where the seats are than we are, is Jesus actually being glorified? Because that's the key and that is what the church is. This is what he purchased with his blood, a people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, unified to him and to him and living for him. 
And I'm convinced of this fact. This is stuff that I'm really passionate about. I'm convinced that a large part of dysfunctional, unproductive behavior in both old and young stems from a misunderstanding of identity. A misunderstanding of identity. That's to do with children. When they know that they're loved and they're affirmed and they're secure in their family unit, they'll be more likely to live in a way that pleases their parents. That's the reality. When we understand who we are as the church and as the people of God, we're more likely to live as the church and as the people of God. So identity is really, really important. It's my firm conviction that if we knew more accurately who we were as the church, things would be different for the better. That is my conviction, and I think that rings true. When we know who we are and who He is and who we are in Him, then we're more likely to live in a way that is worthy of the calling we've received. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but hopefully you do, and if you don't, hopefully by the end you do. So who are we? And what are we doing here? And I've only got two points today, which is a bit revolutionary from a preacher to only have two points, but we're going to do it because I want you to get these two things because they're vital for our understanding of identity. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 19, please. Exodus chapter 19. We're going to read from the first verse. This is the first thing that I want to say to you, that you are, as a part of this church, you are a holy and a royal priesthood. A holy and royal priesthood. That is who you are, okay? Let's read from Exodus 19, verse 1, to get the backdrop of where this phrase even comes from. So we're talking to the, we're looking at the people of Israel as they make their journey from slavery into the promised land. And it says in Exodus 19, verse 1, On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they had set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai. And Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Let's pause for a minute there before we get into the New Testament. God's plan for this redeemed group of slaves, Israel, was that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It wasn't just to set them free, it was to actually give them purpose in the world that they lived. So they were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation set apart throughout the, all the nations of the earth, set apart as a unique um, entity and individuals. They had a function in the world. What this meant was that this people group had this remarkable function in, in the world. They would represent the God had who had delivered them 
They would be a blessing to the nations around them, and they would point people towards the one true God, who, who was the one true God. That was their function. That's what it meant to be a kingdom, a holy royal priesthood. So that's what they were to do as they journeyed along their way. Now, the remarkable thing is this, that in the New Testament, Peter, who walked with Jesus, used this same phrase to refer not to Israel, but actually to the church. Gentile and Jewish believers, all who made up the church that he was writing to, and he used this same title, the same description, the same phrase to refer not to Israel, but to the church. Now, that's a remarkable thing. When you think about the privileged place that the nation of Israel had in God's plans and what God was now saying to the church. Now, if you flick over now to 1 Peter um, chapter 1, verse 9, Peter uses this phrase to attribute to the people of God, the church. And say with me, would you? I am the church. I am the church. Okay, so this is being said to you here today. Every single one has put their faith in Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 1, verse 9. <clears throat> Therefore, <clears throat> excuse me, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, I'm going to read different phrases, so if you would, and please don't fall asleep, but if you would, for a moment, just close your eyes and listen to this as if it's being said directly to you, as if you're hearing it for the first time. So no sleeping, no snoring, just close your eyes and listen. I'm going to read different verses from this next passage, from verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Awake, back in the room, everyone. You are a royal priesthood. You are a chosen people. You're God's special possession that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is who we are, folks, as the church. Every single one of us. You're members of a royal priesthood. You're to represent God and his rule in the world that you live in. And in so doing, you're going to bring blessing to that world. And you're going to point people to the one true God. We have this awesome task and responsibility. And the offering that you offer to God is not, um, it's not necessarily stuff that you bring here on a Sunday. When you're picking up your kids, you're offering a special sacrifice to God as a priest. You're doing something that's pleasing to him because what we offer to God in our lives is not pleasing to him because of who we are, but as we read in the passage, it's because of who Jesus is. So when we live our lives for him in a way that pleases him, we're doing something that blesses his heart. That's what we're called to. And like we said last week, this isn't complicated. This is work on a Monday morning, getting into work on time. This is a good attitude when stuff's not going quite right. 
This is giving your kids your best when you're really, really tired and you've got very little left. This is what it means to be a chosen people in a royal priesthood. That's what it means. This is what God is pleased with. Again, not looking at the dramatic, spectacular, big thing. He called this group of slaves in the Old Testament out of slavery. They had nothing. They had nothing. Their whole lives was, was as slaves. They had nothing special to give to this God that had delivered them. But all he called them to do was to walk with, it, with him each day, do what was right, love mercy and justice, be an example to the world around him. That's what he was calling them to. And that's what he is calling us to. Because if you know Peter's letter in the New Testament, this letter was written to the elect exiles, to the ones facing difficulty. It wasn't in the ornate buildings where they had 20 ministries and they had the best celebrity preachers. These were congregations and this was a congregation that was struggling to get by. But yet Peter calls them who they are a holy and royal priesthood. And that's what we are today, folks. But in this, it's important that we don't miss something and what we offer to God. One of the greatest um, privileges of a priest was actually to fellowship with God. See, the priests of the Old Testament, where this imagery comes from, they went before God. They carried things to God. They spoke to God and they carried the will of God back to the people. That was a privileged function and position. And in the Old Testament, there was a, a group of high priests or people who had very special, unique functions. But in the New Testament, we all have that wonderful privilege and position. See, that's, that's something incredible about the New Testament now that we're, the days that we are living in, that all of us have that privilege to come before God, to fellowship with Him, to hear His heart, to learn from Him and take Him and who He is back to the people of the, the communities that we're in. So don't forget your responsibility, but don't forget your privilege. Because how many of you know, and we know this all so well, that we can serve, 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 and we can forget our wonderful privilege of knowing the one that we're serving, walking with him daily, knowing his strength and difficulty and trial, knowing his power to see things change and know him stepping in to situations. There is power in the name of Jesus, and there's power when we walk humbly before our God. So that's our starting point, okay? But what has this got to do with vision and church vision and the year ahead? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, let me say this. Has anyone ever heard of the phrases clergy and laity? Yeah? So this is a phrase that's used usually in more traditional churches where you have the clergy and they're the ones with the collars on and they're the ones that do the stuff at the front and the laity are the rest of you, for want of a better word, okay? The ones who sit in the congregation. Now this idea, and this is why I'm emphasizing this idea of we're all a chosen people, a royal priesthood, this is, this is why it's important because in our mindset and in the mindset of this country, there's a distinction between the ones at the front who do the spiritual stuff and the rest. And that distinction crept about after about the first century of the church. So up until the, first, up until the end of the first century, it was the people within the congregations that were given roles and jobs within the congregation, and they were given tasks. They were given things to do. So um, looking after the widows, teaching and preaching, operating in spiritual gifts, structure and formation of leadership teams, looking after the kids, healthcare, 
there was people from within the congregations who were given those jobs because everyone was recognized as being spirit-filled and having a functioning God. But after the first century, what happened was people began to be called from other places to be the clergy of new congregations. So it was almost like we haven't really got any great speakers here. And I'm using Northern Ireland, Belfast accent here. They obviously didn't say it that way. But in the early church after the first century, it was very much, we don't really have people who can do that ministry really well. We're going to call someone from down the road and they're going to come here. We're going to appoint them as the new leader of this ministry or whatever. This is what still goes on today where there's an understanding that there's a distinction between the ones who are called to do the spiritual stuff, anointed and appointed, and then there's just the rest of us. And the rest of us just sit and watch. Or we just do the wee things that need done, but the real anointed, spirit-filled people, they're the ones at the front, especially the ones that wear waistcoats and ties when they're leading worship. Do you know this is the type of mindset that we have? This is the type of understanding that we have. But folks, that understanding could not be more anti-biblical. It couldn't be further from the truth. When we function like that, when we have spectators, when we have consumerism, when we have people sitting in seats for the majority of their Christian lives who never step into what God has for them, we are doing something wrong. We're missing a massive part of our identity. See, I have been in environments where this was the case, where it was nearly almost... Um, trumpeted from the rooftops, that you're just the church, you're just the members, and you're just the congregation. I'm the real anointed one. It was never said in those terms, but subversively, that idea comes in, and I'm sitting going, oh, yes, we need to, I need to really do everything I can to just, just to, to support him, because he's the really chosen one. And if God's going to speak, he'll speak through that man. Folks, we need to lay that aside if we're going to be the people as God has called us to be. We need to start understanding that every single one of us are the anointed chosen ones of God. Now, we all have different anointings. And let me just demystify what that anointing is. Anointing comes from the Old Testament when somebody was being appointed to a new task, got a load of oil poured on their heads. That was what anointing meant. For David and Saul, when that happened to them to become kings, do you think they felt any different in that moment, apart from just a bit wet, a bit messy? You know that Saul didn't actually think any differently of himself at all. He was actually hiding away from his calling, even though he had been anointed. Sometimes, nearly all the time, we are walking with an empowerment and an anointing from God, and we don't even realize it. We don't feel any different. We don't look any different, but we have a calling from God to do something. And it might not be in church. Most of the time it's not because the jobs within a church are quite limited. Whenever you meet, we meet here on a Sunday, the, I'm trying to expand the responsibilities even within our Sunday gatherings, but that's limited. The real work of church and leaders and teachers is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And most of ministry happens outside these walls. So that's really what our job and role is. But if you do not realize that you are called, that you are part of the royal priesthood, that you have a job and an anointing, then forget about it. We might as well just stop now. I am convinced that if we grasp this as the church, our communities, our families, our home life, we would be different if we understood this reality. 
The clergy-lady distinction does not exist in the Bible. There are people called to specific tasks, even within a church, where there's teaching, preaching, an apostolic function, a prophetic function, all of that. But there's also those within this congregation that are great at helping people. They're great at caring for people. They're great at bringing words of wisdom into situations. There's people in here that are great at practical things. And a lot of the time, can I tell you a secret? No, I'm not going to. started. Oh no, that was a bad move. Sometimes the things that we want to emphasize within even churches and push people up are actually the things we need less of. The things that we're missing out on as churches are actually the things that no one really takes any notice of. I would much rather, I'd much rather five practically minded and heartfelt and faithful individuals than whirlwind preachers who can preach you into the text and out of the text and send you home again. See, we have so much celebrity culture around people at the front who share God's word, and it's right to honor people who can communicate God's word, but we would be doing much better if we had more pastoral individuals within our gatherings. We'd be much better if we had people who could do hospitality. We'd be much better if we stopped fascinating about these certain jobs and certain roles at the expense of the others. I have experienced this, folks, and this is, this is part of where this is coming from, and I'm passionate about it, as you can tell. So we have this wonderful, privileged position, and th this bizarre thing has happened in the minds of people within the church. The paid staff of churches are assumed to be really doing the spiritual stuff, and the rest are just making up the numbers. That's a really horrible thing. What has happened over the years in church life is that there's been this misunderstanding that the select few are the anointed, appointed ones, and the rest are observers. Folks, we need to lay this down. It's a travesty, and it's a shame, and we're missing out on our own purpose in God. We're all anointed. We're all empowered. We all have the Spirit. We are all called to this priesthood to live for God, and taking the hand of sinful man and introducing them to our holy God is a role that we all have. And it's a privilege that we all have to bring this message to the world. In the kingdom of God, we are all of equal value. In the kingdom of God, we are all of equal value. So we are all this priesthood. Second point is this. We are members of a bigger body. If you go to um, 1 Corinthians, please, chapter 12, if you would. Hopefully you're still with me. No, it's okay. Thanks very much. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Very well-known passage of Scripture, um, but let's look at it just for a few moments. Just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we are all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. 
Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. That's a remarkable phrase. But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. Now bear with me, let me read you some more of this. The eye cannot stay, say to the hand, I do not need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Down to verse 24. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked, so, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for another. And then we know the rest of that passage, it goes on down, and Paul is saying, do you all give prophecy? Do you all teach? Do you all speak in tongues? And he's using this to say, it's, really you're assuming the answer is going to be no, because he's just talked about the diversity within the body of Christ and how the body of Christ is made up. So there's different people doing different things in different ways. And even those who think, well, I'm not, I'm not as good as him because I'm just an ear, Do you know? And that's the idea. Oh, I'm just a hand. I'm just a foot in this body. And Paul is saying, how would the rest of the body function if that were the case? And it would not be because somebody felt like that that they would cease to be a part of this wider body. So that's the idea. And then at the end, are all prophets, are all teachers, do you all work miracles? Do you all have gifts of healing? Do you all speak in tongues? Do you all interpret? And I eagerly desire the more beneficial gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Now, this is a passage we know so well, we've heard it so often, but we still struggle with the truth of it. Because there's lots of us that still feel inferior because we don't have the same gifts as somebody else. We're still using that old mindset and mentality. I'm not as good as him. I'm not really, I don't really belong to the body. Do you know, I'm just, I'm just this or I'm just that. But Paul here clearly, under the inspiration of, of, of the Holy Spirit, is clearly saying that every single one of us make up some part of this universal body that we're part of, the body of Christ. We all have a valuable part to play. Whether we think it or not, we have something to contribute. There is unity and diversity within this body. This is a bit of an understatement, but we are all so different. We are all so different. Hillary and I often laugh about how different we are, and we ended up married. Um, but every single one of us, not one fingerprint, not one eye, exactly the same. The body of Christ of which we are a part is so diverse it should come as no surprise that it's so diverse because our God is the one who created the galaxies with its great diversity. He's the one that has thousands of species of bird within the world. He's the one who has created every single human being with a different fingerprint for us all. So it should come as no surprise that the way he wants his church to function is with diversity, with that unity within it. So why do we Christians think that everyone should look the same? Why do we think that as Christians, as believers, as members of the body of Christ, that we should all look and talk and sound the same? Why do we give people a hard time? Because they don't fit into our wee box. 
Why do we get a bit stressed because our church service doesn't look like the church service up the road? Why do we fight with them? No one in particular. But why do we have that attitude that, oh, you're doing that wrong, you're doing that wrong, you're, you shouldn't be doing that because we do it this way? What is our problem? <laughs> I think I'm going to get that T-shirt. What's wrong with people to, know, to say, what's wrong with us? Why do we think like this? Whenever here in Scripture we see that the way the body of Christ should function is with this great diversity. There's something beautiful in that, and we're missing out on some of that beauty when we want everyone to look and sound and talk the same. And listen to these words from verse 18 again. I pinpointed them at the start, but let me read them again. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So see the next time you're looking in the mirror complaining of what you don't have, remember that creator God has placed you where you are with what you have, just as he wanted you to be. Then you've got an argument you can't win. Because I can tell you, oh, God has created you for more than that. Don't be insecure. Don't be fearful. And you'll go, oh, thanks very much, Bill, but you'll not believe me. But here you have God himself saying that he has created you, who you are, for this time, where you are, just as he wanted you to be. It's really important. It'd be really great if we could get better at celebrating biblical diversity. We hear a lot about diversity out there in the world today. It's kind of a buzzword. But we in the church, we should be the best at it. We should be the best in recognizing that everyone is different and everyone has a part to play instead of being very narrow-minded in ourselves. It would be great if we could let people be themselves and be and bring what God has gifted them to do for the common good of us all. The church over the years, um, globally, in different parts and different places, has missed out on some of the gifts that God actually wanted them to have because they've rejected the people that brought them. That's a wee bit um, convoluted way to say that the church has been very narrow-minded in the past. So you look at churches today, and we're going to get to the part where we talk about um, loving different church expressions all around the place. But you look at some of the churches today, some of the traditional churches have been around for maybe 300 years. When those churches came on the scene, they were the new church. They were pioneering aspects of music and liturgy and preaching and building projects. They were doing all that stuff. But then because they became so entrenched in that way of doing thing, doing a thing, they rejected any development or modernization or moving on. They said to the people who had creative gifts in music, no, we don't do that music here because we do this type of music. They said to the people who had poetic gifting, Oh, no, we, we, we don't do that. We don't make up our own words to those things. And what has happened is there's been a severing and a cutting off of gifting that God wanted to bring into the church because there was a narrow-minded mindset of the diversity and the function of God. Now, we're a church that's under 40 years old. We need to watch that's not the same with us too. We need to be careful that whenever God starts to move and shift us, by his spirit, because that's what he does. There's always a movement, there's always a growing, there's always a developing. We need to be careful that we're not putting the barriers up and saying, no, we don't do that like this. 
We do it in a different way because we've always done it this way. And that's why when churches and movements get to a certain age, they either reform or they fossilize and they crumble. That's why we need to always be on the lookout for different ways that God's doing things. Now, there's things that remain constant throughout all the ages, throughout all the church expressions, and it's the cross of Jesus Christ. We can't lay those things aside, the things that are of primary importance, but see the rest, that they're diversity issues. They're differences of functions. And I'm excited about the days ahead to see how those things interweave with the body of Christ here as a collective. See, when we emphasize certain things over against other things, when we say this is the spiritual stuff and that's not really the spiritual stuff, we weaken the body as a whole. We sever a massive part of the body when we don't embrace it and when we don't even try to make space for it. I have broken a few bones in my life. I've had a few bandages on. I've had a few stitches and fingers and legs and torn a few muscles along the way. But if any of you ever have had injuries in your life, you will know how debilitating losing part of your body is, even for a short time. When you're trying to function in the way you've always functioned, but you've actually not got use of your hand or your foot or whatever. Why do we do that in the body of Christ? Why do we sever off parts of the body and then wonder why we're struggling? Why do we cut off things and say that's of no value here? whenever it's actually something God wants to bring. I tried to think of an example to the, of this, um, how this works itself out in church. And you know, there was just so many. Just so many. So many ways in which we do this. So I thought of the most controversial one I could. The one that would start a fight. <laughs> Women. Now, the biggest, the bigger conversation is for another time. But you and I both know that within Northern Ireland, in these past 300 years, the women who have had so much to bring to the church have been relegated to the background. Been relegated to doing the things that aren't in the public domain. They've been told that they can raise children. They can look after Sunday schools. They can go and pioneer mission work in deepest, darkest Africa. They can lay down their lives for the gospel. But boy, don't have them up on stage preaching. Now, folks, yes, the sermon's for another time. But in doing that, what has happened is we have severed a massive part of the gifting and the calling, and the body of Christ as a whole. Some places, women are allowed to do some things, some they're allowed to do other things. Some places, in the name of biblical authority, and, and staying true to the Bible, abuse has taken place. Women have actually been manipulated by their husbands in the name of scriptural authority, and suffered years as a result. Folks, this should not be. And as I said, there's many more examples, but I just thought I'd pick the most controversial one just for a laugh. <laughs> Folks, we need to put this stuff right. We need to put this stuff right. We need to accept and make space for the life of God in every believer. 
Now, I don't care. You can come and you can argue and you can say, but I don't believe in that. I, whatever you believe, make sure you're making space for what God is doing in your brothers and sisters' lives, whatever it is that you're doing. Whether you agree with egalitarianism or hierarchy or complementarianism, whatever your format is, if it involves abusing another member of the body of Christ, then you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. So we need to take seriously, we need to take seriously this idea of unity and diversity, functioning together for the common good, because then we're expressing something about our God and our Lord that's so true. Did you ever think about why it was that Jesus called the outcasts to be his disciples? Different people, tax collectors, educated people, fishermen, people who were greedy, people who were swindlers, people who struggled. Why spend time with tax collectors and publicans and sinners and even prostitutes? Do you ever think about why he did that? He did that to show what he was doing was an all-inclusive thing where nobody was going to be left on the fringes. Did you ever think of why in a male-dominated society where women's voice did not mean anything in Jesus' day, why he told them in John 21 to be the first ones to go and give the good news to the disciples? Did that ever cross your mind? Well, if it didn't, it has now. Have a think about it. Why is it that Jesus is doing that, including the outcast, the sinner, the women, the children who come and sit on his knee and he blesses them? Why does he do that in a culture that was very male-dominated and only those who had education were worth anything? He did it to show an example that we're to follow. And church, if we followed that example, things would be better. For a healthy church must accept and celebrate diversity, must recognize it's a part of a bigger body, for we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. We all have our part to play, both here locally and also globally in the wider world. Yeah. Let me finish with this. What would it all look like if we recognized who we were as a royal priesthood in the sight of God, living our lives for him. And we also celebrated all types of diversity. We welcomed it and we gave space for that which was for the common good. What would it look like? Do you want me to tell you what it would look like? It would look like the kingdom of God because that's what God is working to towards the end. What happens whenever he returns and sets up his kingdom? Who will come and worship and bow down before him? People from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. All the diversity of the whole world will come and worship him. And that's what he's doing. So see why we are here and we're praying, let your kingdom come. His kingdom coming here, it matters to us. And how we play our part is actually making space for the things that are important to him. Not just praying it, not just singing it, but actually doing something about it. That's what it would look like. The new heaven and a new earth. Folks, that's who you are. Please walk in the truth of it. Let me pray before I give you just a couple of announcements and then we're done. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. First and foremost, the head of your church, the redeemed, blood-bought people of God that you have ransomed from slavery, you've set us free, and you've called us to walk before you and make you known in the world that we live. God, I pray that you would help us. A lot of us have come from backgrounds where 
we've had a skewed understanding of you and also of our identity in you. And I pray, God, over even these next few weeks and months and even the next years in this fellowship, that you would help correct our understanding. Lord, you would help us see you for who you are and see ourselves in you and what you've called us to. Lord, I pray that we would have heard from your heart this morning, whatever you wanted to say to us. And I pray that those seeds would be planted in us and bear fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.